Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Episode 31, nothing we will say. 31 is totally boring, but it happens to be a prime number. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why a Christmas (laughs) melody came to mind, but 31, we will say nothing. It is episode 31. I was just going to say happy podcast day. Yes. Happy podcast day. My favorite day. I love podcast day. I get to see you. I get to talk about really interesting things. Yeah, it's fun. Yes. And we uh, don't see each other. (laughs) I know. I know. It's so sad. But we're planning a trip to California for summer 2023, which sounds made up, but (laughs) (laughs) that's my life right now. (laughs) Well, the made up part about it is that it is next year i know (laughs) (laughs) that's the unforgivable reality i know i know it sucks but i mean thank god for zoom gosh this is calling back those days where we used to do a lot of banter about zoom remember yeah i remember editing out a lot of banter about (laughs) zoom (laughs) uh banter 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 I actually should have a lot of banter because we went on a trip last week. I took the girls in a plane and we went (sighs) to a place and we took for hire cars. Was it lovely? It was lovely. We went to places. Saw people. We saw people. We talked to people. We did things. It was really, really nice. And... You know, I said in the last episode, or I don't know, two episodes, whenever we talked about it, I was kind of scared to death, and I was, and I think people there probably thought I was a freak because we happened to go to (laughs) Texas, and Texas is kind of like, pandemic? What pandemic? But, you know, I, I got a little more comfortable as time went on, and so far, so good. I mean, we tested ourselves before we came back. No Rona, and... Still nothing. So hopefully my crazy precautions worked. All right. You ready to jump in? Yeah. I think I think the people want to know about yeah. our episode. All right. Refocus. Seriously. So today we're going to talk about a case that is one of my top most interesting cases. And... I say that knowing that that sentence is kind of awkward, but as much as I love the podcast, I don't love the, the phrase, my favorite murder. So I, I think this is one of my most interesting cases. I find it endlessly fascinating. Um, I learned about it when I was a teenager and I come back to it time and time again, meaning I go down the rabbit hole every two or three years. It's one of those cases that I think is so freaking fascinating, even when you know who done it. And mm-hmm. we know who done it. Totally. John List, the subject <sighs> of our episode. For those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, let me set the scene. It's a Sunday night in suburban Rhode Island. 
May 21st, 1989 to be exact. Summer is around the corner and life is carefree for a 17-year-old me who should have been out with friends canoodling or at the very least doing homework or something. But instead, I was glued to the boob tube watching America's Most Wanted. The first hit for the still new Fox network and a cultural phenomenon, at least in the offing. Also, like Law and Order, mm-hmm. one of those shows that was just always available to watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. Although this is in a time before your time, you were alive, but you were still in short pants, as they say. And live TV was very much an anchor, you know. So if you're young and you don't remember the days when you would work your schedule around certain shows, this is right in that era. And so for me on Sunday night, that meant clearing the decks, ignoring homework, chores, whatever, and watching America's Most Wanted. Was it a family affair or was it a young Kirsten on the chair by herself? (laughs) I think probably that one. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you'll have met my mom virtually in one of our early episodes. So, you know, she's interested in crime too, but I don't know. I don't remember her there, but maybe she was. Maybe we were sitting around watching this together. As a family thing. I don't thing. think we watched it as a family. I don't think. Like, I know I watched, like, Cops with my brother. Mm-hmm. Which Cops? I mean, that's a whole nother. <laughs> but, I mean, Cops, if you didn't have somebody to sing the theme song with, what was even the point? Bad boys, bad boys. What, what you, you gonna, gonna do? <laughs> what you gonna do with it coming for you? <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other. That's an episode unto itself. But yeah, uh, America's Most Wanted, it was always available somehow. I mean, I must have been watching it in syndication, mm-hmm. like after they had 10 seasons under their belt, and it was just always on Fox at any given moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I watched some of them new too, but I am sh- I was watching lots of reruns. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I would still have been running first, you know, release and the reruns at that time. So good. So good. And then that awfulness of John Walsh and his son being kidnapped and yeah. sort of like leading him to host that show. I mean, this is an incredible tangent, but yeah. it comes up later. We, I, I talk a lot about America's Most Wanted in the culture. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and it's all wrapped up into this time period and it, you know, the correlation becomes more clear later. Yeah. But for me, that's when I first heard the name John List. He was a devout Lutheran and a Sunday school teacher. He was a World War II and Korean War vet. And he was a straight-laced number cruncher with undergrad and graduate degrees from the University of Michigan. To the outside world, he was a loving husband and father of three. Also, he was an admitted mass murderer and 18-year fugitive from justice. But let me go back all the way back, as I sometimes like to do, uh, to the very beginning. John Emil List was born to John Frederick List, a self-employed shop owner, and Alma Marie Barbara Florence List, a homemaker and nurse. 
After the death of the Elder John's first wife in 1923, he and Alma married in November 1924. The Elder John was 60 and Alma was 38. John Emil List was born less than a year later on September 17, 1925. So John had three half-siblings from his father's first marriage, but the oldest was the same age as his mom, and the youngest had died the year before at the age of 30. So young John, even though he was part of a big family, was raised as an only child, and he reported later that he was isolated by his parents, and he was part of a mostly German-speaking community. So it seems like a very kind of lonely existence. Now, the List family was really large and influential in the area where he was born in Michigan. Johann Adam List, who was Alma's grandfather, and his brother, also Johann List, no middle name, who was the elder John's father. Is that clear? So it was... John Emile's great-grandfather on his mother's side and grandfather on his father's side. So his parents were cousins, first cousins once removed. Yeah. (laughs) The brothers came to the United States around 1845 from Bavaria, which is now part of Germany. And they came as Lutheran missionaries with the dual purpose of A, ministering to the growing German-American population, and B, converting the indigenous tribes in the Saginaw Bay area of Michigan. They founded the town of Frankenmuth, Michigan, as well as its St. Lorenz Lutheran Church. This was all a failed mission, though, because within a few years, most of the Native Americans had moved away from the area to more fertile hunting lands to the west. But the List family was as faithful as it was prodigious. By the early 1900s, some of the descendants of the original List missionaries had left Frankenmuth for opportunities in Saginaw and Bay City, which is located about 30 miles away. And they took their religion and their deep convictions with them. Today, for reference, there are 46 Lutheran churches and 14 Lutheran schools in the Saginaw, Bay City, and Frankenmuth areas, with a total combined population of only about 300,000. So that's a whole lot of Lutheran. And according to Wikipedia, quote, catechism instruction is considered foundational in Lutheranism. Lifelong study of the catechism is intended for all ages so that the abuses of the pre-Reformation church will not occur, end quote. So List family were members of the most conservative branch of Lutheranism in the United States called the Missouri Synod, and it was in this closed community that List grew up. List and his family, they went to church every Sunday, and his father taught Sunday school. It was a really huge part of their family identity and their day-to-day life. And this brings back for me some of the discussions that we had around the Hoffman case, you know, this kind of deep indoctrination into a religion early on in life to the exclusion of most other things. You know, there's a lot of similarities here. Yeah, that level of suppression, repression, isolation, insular community built off of being perfect, like, 
there's a lot to unpack there. So, yeah, it's a formula for some some problems. On top of it, his parents were both extremely strict, particularly his mother, who some reports call, quote, overbearing. And I think you, listener, know me well enough by now to know that that's a characterization that I loathe because it just reeks of gender roles and misogyny. But that's how she's often described. And I think it does seem clear that if nothing else, she was maybe a smidge overprotective of her only child. Liz's father was a successful self-employed merchant who owned a dry goods store in Bay City. He was already an old man at the time of Liz's birth, and he focused mostly on his businesses and church life, leaving all of the parenting to Alma. They lived in a comfortable four-bedroom Victorian home on the west side of Bay City, but it was a lonely existence for List. He later reported that he was left to play by himself for most of his early years. And I mean, it sounds almost unbelievable, but he said he rarely interacted with people outside his family or church community. Oh, gosh. Yeah. List's teen years were reportedly pretty uneventful, but either because of some natural disposition or the family-imposed isolation, or, you know, maybe both, List had some social difficulties, and he really didn't have very many friendships at all. Dances and other common teenage social activities were forbidden by his parents. At 6'2", List was tall and handsome, and he did briefly date a few girls in high school, but nothing that became serious or lasted for any significant period of time. Then in 1943, Liss graduated from high school, and soon after, with World War II underway, he enlisted in the Army. So while Liss was serving in World War II, his father died at the age of 80. Liss's template for manhood, i.e. hard work, financial success, piousness, and aloofness, was gone. In 1946, after working as a lab technician and a 41-day tour of combat in Germany, List was discharged from active duty. He then went and took advantage of the GI Bill, and he enrolled in college at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Now, this is an aside, but I read in one of the articles about him that his mother was so kind of part of his life and maybe a little smothering, that she used to take the bus once a month to Ann Arbor to visit him at college so that she could spend more time with him. So, you know, just a little data point. That's uh, (laughs) a... Not to divulge too much information, but I feel as though the distance really helps a lot in my (laughs) relationship with my mom. Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes I see people with, like, what looks like very happy families that really like spending time with each other. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, that would be nice. But then you get to this other side of the equation, too, where it's like, well, at least it wasn't that intense. (laughs) It reminds me a little of, you know, the the reboot of Arrested Development when, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a little like that. But 
by all accounts, List was very smart with a very high IQ. And he went on to earn a bachelor's degree in business administration. And then he got his MBA at Michigan in accounting. Hmm. After he received his degree, List was commissioned as a second lieutenant through the Reserve Officers Training Corps, or ROTC for short. And then in 1950, as the Korean War intensified, List was once again called to active duty, and he was sent to Fort Eustis, Virginia. While he was stationed there, List met Helen Morris Taylor, a 27-year-old war widow who lived nearby with her young daughter. It really appeared to be a good match, and List, who, remember, had never had a serious girlfriend at this point, fell really hard for Helen. In December of 1951, only a few months after meeting, the couple married. Now, List later reported that Helen had manipulated him into marriage by falsely claiming to be pregnant. Being a devout Lutheran, List felt he had no choice but to propose. Now, he was not so devout that he said no to premarital sex, mind you, but that's another story. Well, isn't that how it always goes, though? (laughs) It's like, well, I get to blame this person and shame this person, especially when it's in my favor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there was a a lot of, yeah, bending history to suit his narrative. Well, especially after the fact, which we'll we'll get to. <laughs> Foreboding. Um, yeah, so after the wedding plans were finalized, Helen apparently told List that she wasn't pregnant anymore. But according to List, again, later, he felt he had to go through with it. Whether this is true or not, who knows? I mean, I don't think anyone can know at this point. But he apparently believed it was all a ploy. Now, I'm skeptical for quite a few reasons, and we'll come back to that later. For now, just know that, you know, they they got married very quickly after they met. List was again discharged from active duty in 1952, and the family moved to Detroit, where List took a job with an accounting firm. Not long after, the family moved once again now to Kalamazoo. So not a, not a big move, but, you know, a little hop there. And he worked as an auditor for Sutherland Paper Company. This was the longest period of stability for the lists. They had three children in quick succession, Patricia in 1955, John in 1956, and Frederick, the youngest, in 1958. Now, remember, also, the household had Helen's first child from her first marriage, um, Mm -hmm. and she was quite a bit older, but Brenda lived with the family as well. List himself was doing well, by outward appearances anyway. In 1959, he was still at the paper company and had been promoted to the head of the accounting department. Helen reportedly suffered from postpartum depression after Frederick was born, though, and in general, her health was not well. Well, especially back then. Yeah. Like, I mean, so little is really even understood about postpartum now in sort of a cultural level not not necessarily a medical level but Mm -hmm. to think of it back then it would have just been like I don't know how anybody survived back then yeah and I think that right from the beginning Liz knew that she enjoyed you know an adult bevy from time to time 
but her drinking increased over the years. And most reports that I read start using the word alcoholism about this time. Mm-hmm. So postpartum depression, alcoholism in some stage of progression. And bigger than all of this, she also had a really huge secret. A secret that she kept from everyone for decades. During her first marriage, Helen had contracted syphilis from her husband, who was also in the army. The timeline is unclear, but it happened sometime in the 40s, possibly even before the cure for the disease was discovered in 1943. So she married her first husband in 1941 when she was 17. So it could have been at any point during that time. If she received treatment, it was not successful. And she, for whatever reason, we can't, you know, we can't know the ins and outs of her medical history, but she was never cured. And she simply managed her symptoms as best as she could. She was already in the latent stage of the disease when she met List. So she, she never passed it on to him. Um, but I think it's really hard to overstate just how stigmatizing this disease would be to a young woman in 1951. Yeah. I think even someone who was not involved with a person who was hyper-religious that just would have been a stigma that, you know, a person mm-hmm. would have a very difficult time overcoming. At least in the circles that the lists wanted to be a part of. Because, of course, it would be her own, air quotes, moral failing. Right. Totally. I don't think anyone would have, you know, said, well, her husband was a dirtbag, clearly, you know, I I don't think that would have been how that played out. And she knew that, which is why she kept this huge secret. Yeah. Now, going back to that idea that Helen tricked List into marriage, this detail is one of the reasons why I have my doubts. So I read a report that Helen suffered during her first marriage from several miscarriages. And it was due to complications from syphilis. So it's possible that when she told List she was pregnant, she was actually pregnant, but then she suffered a miscarriage. Now, if that happened, it's totally possible that she didn't want to go into details with List about why she miscarried for fear that he would find out her diagnosis. So that's a pretty believable scenario in my mind. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think List, again, having made this attribution some time later, you know, was looking for worst case. He wasn't assuming good intent, I guess, to to put it in modern to put it in modern kind of foo-foo terms. Yeah. The only evidence we have of Helen's supposed manipulation is List's word. So not very reliable, obviously. He clearly had some Madonna whore thing going on, and his strict religious upbringing gave him some serious sexual baggage. Also, reports from people other than List describe the young couple very much in love in those early days, and they got married after only knowing each other a few months. So I don't know how quickly all of that would fade, you know, that new Uh relationship glow. So 
I think that his whole claim was just a case of buyer's remorse and hindsight that he kind of put together years later after the marriage had, you know, deteriorated. Totally. And it's a small thing, and maybe it seems like I'm harping on it, but I think it's really important because it goes to his state of mind and the stories that he told to himself about his life's trajectory, which we'll, we'll come back to later. But whatever the details of Helen's medical history, by 1959, the year after their last child was born, the effects of the disease, combined with the postpartum and her heavy drinking, were taking a huge toll. She became really reclusive, and according to later testimony, she became verbally abusive to List. Mm. Yeah. And crucially, she stopped attending church with the family, and instead she sent the children with List. Now, if we were to look at this with kind of a 2022 lens, you know, she had three little children. She had this really difficult progressive disease. Um, she drank too much. Her husband was kind of an aloof jerk. I mean, you know, you could see why she might want to break on Sunday mornings. But for List, this was a big shift in the relationship. And in his mind, not going to church meant you would go to hell. I mean, that's kind of how his personal theology worked. That's tough. I mean, religious differences in a relationship can really divide. Yeah, for sure. Some reports that I read even suggest that his mother, List's mother, Alma, who lived with the family, tried to persuade List to divorce Helen during this time. So that's a big step because, again, remember, he is deeply religious and devout and strict because she was deeply religious, devout, mm -hmm. and strict. So for her to suggest divorce, I think, speaks to the enmity between the two and also how bad, how badly things were going within the house. Mm -hmm. But for List, who, again, was a strict Lutheran, divorce was really unthinkable. Now... You know, in hindsight, I think some of it was because of his faith and he felt it was a sin and he didn't want to do it. But I think a lot of it was because he really cared deeply what other people thought of him. And I don't think he was willing to let people know that his marriage was a failure. I definitely agree. So he strenuously refused any suggestion of divorce in spite of his unhappiness his solution was to take on more household responsibilities, which real talk, I mean, in the 1950s, that probably just meant he was doing his fair share. But <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> different times. He also began spending money more freely to improve their already comfortable lifestyle, including expensive gifts, clothes and jewelry for Helen, which is something that she really liked and craved, as well as a second car, which was a luxury most families didn't enjoy at that time, mm -hmm. and gifts and things for the children. So in 1961, Liz essentially determined that to keep up with the spending pace, he needed to increase his income. So he applied for jobs all over, and he eventually took a job at Xerox in Rochester, New York. And once again, he 
advanced to the head of the accounting department fairly quickly. So he had ability, he was smart, and he was able to work prodigiously. But by this time, Brenda's daughter from her first marriage had become pregnant at the age of 16, and she was sent to a home for unwed mothers. From what I can tell, she never returned to the home after that. Alma, though, remained a fixture in the household, and relations between her and Helen had grown so bad that they avoided each other completely. And even as his home life continued to deteriorate, List's professional life was showing some cracks too. Although he, like I said, was a conscientious and hard worker with a talent for what he had chosen to do, the social difficulties he had experienced as a child followed him into the workplace. At work, he was a loner, not making friends for sure, but not even participating in the minimum kind of social exchanges that help grease the wheels at work. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, I mean... I don't know that anybody really loves that stuff, but it's kind of part of the part of the deal. Yeah, which is one of the great things about remote work is that you get to avoid <laughs> some of that. He may have thrived in a pandemic, who knows. He reportedly was known to do some odd things too. So it went farther than just kind of not doing the expected social things. He was known to eat lunch in his car with the windows rolled up and listening to loud classical or church music on the radio. Classical? Okay. Church. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I mean, I think it was like classical with a tinge of churchiness. You know what I mean? I hate to be that guy, but it really does. Like, if you switch the genre a little bit, it's like, oh, that's extra weird. Right? I mean, it's all, yeah. And all of this is in hindsight, you know. So about four years into his time at Xerox, his kind of borderline odd and definitely his aloof behavior had affected his career to the point that he was asked to look for work elsewhere. So the company gave him an excellent reference and time to conduct a search. And again, he applied for jobs all over the country. In 1965, his search led to an offer from the First National Bank of Jersey City. List would be their new vice president and comptroller, but the prestigious title didn't come with a salary increase. And although his salary at Xerox and then at the bank was healthy for the time, it really couldn't keep up with the family's increasingly lavish lifestyle. So List had determined that Westfield, New Jersey, where his new office would be, was the ideal place to shepherd his flock through the coming teen years. And it's hard to know exactly what was going through his mind as the family began this new chapter, but in spite of the growing financial strain that he was very aware of, List purchased a $50,000 Victorian mansion in Westfield called Breeze Knoll. It's insane. (laughs) (laughs) So with a whopping 19 rooms, it included a ballroom, a billiards room, a large yard, and plenty of space for a separate apartment for his mother. It was the house of their dreams. Later, Liz tried to talk about the purchase as really being something that his wife and his mother wanted and kind of pressed him into, but 
I don't really see any evidence for that. I mean, yes. Did they like the house? Yes. Did they want the house? Yes. Did they enjoy the house? Yes. But, you know, I don't know. Again, I think this is his kind of like rewriting history. To buy a 19 room house that you can't afford, something has got to be so fucked up Mm-hmm. in the family I mean clearly like you're discussing it but like to to like feel it to like empathize it like those decisions and he's an accountant like he knows what things cost yeah like the decisions the second car spending more and more money up to the point of a 19 room home with the ballroom and a billiards room mm-hmm. like something is broken broken right and I don't, I don't think too, I mean, for our older listeners, they'll get it. But I think for younger people, I don't know if younger people can really understand the extent to which having two cars was like really a big deal, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll get to it later. Just some of the stuff that they had in the house that, you know, I mean, yeah, it, it's it's hard to really understand. And I get into some of the nuts and bolts of how much he was making and things like that soon. But for sure, he was not making decisions with his rational brain because he was good at crunching numbers. He was good at what he did. He understood very clearly how, how many worked and, you know. Um, but I think there was a part of him, A, he cared a lot about what people thought. And two, I think that he thought that maybe some of the unpleasantness he experienced with his mother and with his wife might go away if he could just give them what he thought they wanted, which was this lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So the family moved into this new mansion and they embraced their new hometown. And by all accounts, List really took to Westfield. They joined the Redeemer Lutheran Church The children jumped into school and extracurriculars with both feet, and it probably seemed for a while like Westfield was the answer to their prayers. But the underlying problems in the family ran deep, and a simple move just couldn't erase the pressures that were building around him. After the initial glow of their new circumstances wore off, life at home continued to be a struggle, and I mean... Duh, you know? Mm-hmm. The purchase of the mansion had only been possible with assistance from his mother's savings. So even though she now had a separate mother-in-law apartment, Alma's $10,000 gift towards the down payment changed the power dynamics slightly. And Helen at one point told Liss that his mother's presence robbed her of the joy of living there. So, I mean, you could see it just kind of bubbling up. And, I mean, that sounds a little hyperbolic, but, you know, I think it just speaks to the tensions that he was living with. Yeah. The children also were a growing concern for List. As the traditional social mores of the early 60s gave way to the more freewheeling late 60s, the kids naturally became more independent. By 1969, they were 14, 13, and 11, and developmentally, they were on the cusp of building lives separate from their family, and more specifically, not under List's strict control. Patricia, in particular, was a concern for List, 
and his conservative values. She had a keen interest in theater, and she was taking drama classes after school. Liz believed that acting was sinful, so this became a real pressure point for both of them. She was also entering puberty and growing into a more womanly figure, and this seemed to just trigger the fuck out of List. Again, that whole Madonna horror thing. One night, Patricia and a girlfriend reportedly snuck out of the house to wander around the darkened streets of Westfield by themselves. I mean, by current standards, pretty tame behavior for a teenager. Mm-hmm. They were spotted by police who, again, different times, seeing kids out unattended in the middle of the night, picked them up, took them to the station, and called their parents to come and get them. List responded to this pretty typical teenage limit testing with absolute fury. He reportedly said to Patricia, Slut, you are out of control, you are going to hell, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. So this was his feeling, is that Patricia was kind of spiraling out of his control and she was going down a dangerous path. So a great, fun, normal dad. Totes. (laughs) And to make matters worse, Liz soon realized that his new job in Westfield at the bank was an utter mismatch. So the title of vice president and comptroller implied just a higher level of the work he had always done. But the job came with management responsibilities and a significant business development component, something that would have been nearly impossible for someone with list social struggles. So really just kind of, he was set up to fail here across the board. And his own doing, I'm not saying like poor list, but mm-hmm. you know, the deck was stacked against him. Within a year, the bank let list go, but he couldn't bear the thought of his failure becoming known. So he continued to get dressed in his suit for work every day, pack a lunch and leave for the office as if he still had his job. In reality, he was going to the train station where he just read or slept or listened to music until it was time to go home. Even more insane, List refused to apply for unemployment benefits during this time. And he couldn't cut spending without letting on to his family what was going on. So he just went without income for six months. It's fucking crazy. (laughs) So obviously the debts started piling up even more than they had been before. And at this point, List began siphoning money from his mother's savings to make ends meet. After six long months of the charade, List finally landed a new job. It was a lateral move in terms of title, so still vice president and comptroller. But the position was located an hour away in Manhattan and paid only half of his former salary. But with few options, he accepted the offer, and he then took out a second mortgage on the house to make up the difference. The next year, the company announced that it was moving its headquarters. And I mean, at this point, you just kind of have to shake your head. It's like, you're a scumbag, and man, you really could not catch a break here. And Liz didn't want to leave Westfield. He genuinely liked Westfield, felt comfortable there, loved the house, and he didn't want to relocate the family yet again. So at that point, he found work selling mutual funds from his home office. 
But again, the income didn't match his former salary at the bank, and the slow slide towards complete insolvency continued. Mm-hmm. Now, as the 70s dawned, these cracks in the foundation of Liss' world grew too large to hide completely from the world. Yeah. I think up until this point, he had been kind of keeping it together, although neighbors later reported that he definitely did some odd things. You know, he would mow the lawn wearing a full suit, even in the summer. If kids came into the yard, he would chase them away and throw rocks. So, I mean, you know, he was kind of known as his own type of dude, but I think more or less he had been able to keep it together. Mm Mm-hmm. But the kids were now all in their teens, and they were just showing normal signs of teenage separation. I mean, it's just a normal part of the growing up process. Patricia had a boyfriend and was really involved in the drama department and plays. The boys were active socially and participated in sports and other activities. Helen, at this point, was almost entirely bedridden, and the verbal abuse had intensified. So she would make disparaging comparisons between List and her first husband, who, according to her, was more skilled sexually and, quote, more of a man than List would ever be. She also berated him with disregard for who was president. So this would happen in front of neighbors, in front of her kids, the kids' teachers, just pretty much anyone. Man. Now... With the benefit of omniscience that we have now as we tell the story, I think she was probably having some mental, like, disturbances from the deterioration from syphilis. At the time, it was just like, oh, she's being a bitch and, you know, she's being abusive. I think she was probably having some behavioral changes because of the progression of her disease. And although List was devoted to his mother, he harbored deep resentment about his strict upbringing, which, ironic. Um, And, you know, she continued to be a smothering presence. So I don't think there was open conflict there, but it was definitely something that, you know, made his life harder than it would have otherwise been. And unsurprisingly, uh, selling mutual funds didn't suit List's skills or temperament at all. And the meager income he was able to scrape together wasn't enough to even cover their expenses, never mind help them climb out of the debt he had accumulated. So finally, in late 1970 and early 1971, List had no choice but to try and curtail the family's spending and find other sources of income. So he sold the family's second car, and he encouraged the kids to get after-school jobs. But even in this, List hid the enormity of the problem from everyone. He made excuses for the shift in spending. The after-school jobs, for example, were so the kids would learn responsibility, not because List was struggling to meet basic needs at this point. Mm -hmm. List continued to skim from his mother's savings and basically do everything he could think of. I mean everything he could think of that wouldn't publicly draw attention to his perceived failure as a provider. But he did everything to turn things around financially. His deepest fear was to exhaust all, quote, respectable avenues of support and have to resort to welfare, something that would have been anathema to the Lutheran work ethic he learned so well from his father and the church. 
The old Lutheran belief was that financial success was an indication that one had pleased God. To fail so miserably as a provider that he might need government support or, quote, handouts of any kind was abhorrent to him and a great source of shame and terror, really. Well, I know we're already spending a lot of time, so I'll try not to continue to put in tangents, but, like, it's just so bastardized of, like, you're not a failure. Like, you've had good jobs, but you bought a fucking mansion Mm -hmm. and then didn't work for months. It's like, like, so many people have real struggles and real unfairness is put upon them Mm -hmm. and so when it's somebody like this who's uh, yeah like life sucks life can be hard a lot of bad stuff but it's like every one of these things was a choice yeah yeah totally i mean the whole time i'm i'm reading this stuff and i'm writing this i'm thinking omg white man privilege much i mean this guy who, according to all accounts, had zero social skills, got vice president twice? Like, mm-hmm. how? <laughs> and there are really smart, hardworking people out there, like, who can't get ahead. And here he is just continuing to be handed these opportunities. And, I mean, you know, I'm not saying that he is to blame for his social things or he's not to blame for his upbringing. But, my God, buddy, like, figure it out you know you're getting a lot of real a lot of opportunity to to make it or at least to lower the bar you know Mm -hmm. lower the bar for yourself so in 1970 just as this house of cards was about to fall under its own weight helen was hospitalized because of her deteriorating health it was then that she was diagnosed with a fatal neurological condition and her syphilis diagnosis was finally revealed to List. Learning of this 20-year deception was a fresh hell for him. Not only was an STI dirty and sinful and the betrayal of her lie unforgivable in his mind, he now had another enormous secret to hide from the world. Helen's own sister tried to persuade List to have her institutionalized at this point, but he refused. Whether he was driven by a fear of people knowing about her diagnosis or just an inability to pay for inpatient care, his insistence on caring for her at home certainly wasn't born of love. List was full of disappointment, resentment, anger, and fear about his career, his marriage, even his children. By the fall of 1971, List's obsession with Patricia's obedience, or lack thereof, and adherence to his strict moral and religious code had become frightening. He was terrified that she would slip into smoking and drugs and casual sex, yet efforts to exert more control over her were failing. Patricia began at this point to openly tell her friends that she was afraid of her father. She told a close friend that he wanted all of the children dead. According to various teachers, later, List had threatened to kill the children and even asked them if they would prefer to be buried or cremated. So this is a long time coming. Right. It's not just the, like, if if we weren't diving into the case at this level and the level of research you did, I think it's easy to just be like, 
oh, well, it got too much. And so it was still kind of like a spur of the moment emotional decision. But this was like long time coming. Absolutely. And the thing I want to be careful about here is, you know, a lot of people um, talked about and get shared information later, but I don't want to give the impression or I don't want to encourage judging the teachers and because this was a different time, you know, it was just a different time and we'll get to that a little bit later, but this is not intended to be kind of looking back and, and judging people and the choices that they made. But for sure, this was a long time coming. I think within the household, Patricia certainly, but I, you know, her brothers were not too much younger. I think probably everyone sensed that, you know, the wheels were coming off. Mm -hmm. List's income had dropped to just over $7,000 in selling mutual funds, which is about 50,000 today. And 50,000 or 7,000 back then, that's nothing to sneeze at but he owed $11,000 on three different mortgages on the house. So the bank notified him that foreclosure was imminent. So now the walls are kind of coming in, you know? Mm -hmm. In October, 1971, after months of internal wrestling, which he talked about later, he decided what he needed to do to save his family from financial ruin, public humiliation, and worst of all, in his mind, eternal damnation. And so his solution? Kill them all. <sighs> yep. And once the decision was made, he later said there was no turning back in his mind. He went about the planning of the annihilation of his entire family as if it were some kind of business launch. He methodically planned the method of murder he would use to snuff out his family, which would be guns, and the timing, which ended up being Tuesday, November 9th, and we'll get to that. He had a different date in mind when he started, but some practicalities got in the way. Again, we'll get to that. He got his family's financial and legal affairs in order. And he devised a cover story to explain why the children wouldn't be at school and why no one would be at home. And most importantly for him, he plotted his getaway. Oh, yeah. And this shit stain wasn't going down with the ship. I hope you didn't get that impression. He always had planned on escaping. Mm-hmm. He later revealed that at the time, he believed suicide was a sin, uh, which to his warped brain meant that he could not go to heaven and be with his family in death. So you might what be... What about murder? Yeah, you might be wondering how he expected to go to heaven after murdering his whole family. But again, according to him, he believed that by carrying on, it gave him time to repent and atone for his sins and therefore have a chance to be reunited with his family after death. But not like his actual family, because by this point he pretty much hated them all. He wanted to be reunited with an idealized version of them, where Helen would be restored to the beautiful and healthy young woman he first met, and the children would be innocent and Christian for eternity. And probably never do anything he didn't want them to do, follow every single word he said is essentially servants <laughs> yes yes basically 
which I mean, to be fair, I mean, if you want to be fair to a mass murderer, it's how he was raised and he did toe the line. And I think he had a lot of bitterness about that. And so, you know, why should his kids have better or different or, you know, I, I don't know. I, I can't climb into that mind fuck hole, but mm-hmm. you know, disturbed. So when the date arrived, List woke early and readied everything that he needed. Again, he was a very methodical, meticulous, detail-oriented kind of person. So after giving the children breakfast and seeing them off to school, he returned to the kitchen where Helen had just settled in for her morning coffee. List walked up behind her and, without a word, shot her point-blank behind her left ear. And mercifully, she died immediately. List then climbed the stairs to his mother's third floor apartment and she asked him what the loud noise was. And I think that little detail just gives you a sense of kind of how their lives were enmeshed. So she had this different apartment, but if something loud happened, she heard it and would ask about it. And right. Mm -hmm. So she asked about it and he feigned ignorance. He gave her a kiss on the head and then he shot her point blank in the face. And this is one of those little details. Again, if we weren't diving into it, he steadfastly maintained forever that he shot them all in the back of the head. And we know that's not true. The evidence mm-hmm. just doesn't support that. But again, the stories he tells himself and all of that. So she also mercifully died immediately. And he covered her head with a kitchen cloth and then returned to the first floor. He moved Helen onto his sleeping bag and dragged her into the ballroom where the family gathered for games. Patricia had run lines with her drama coach. And just a week before, List had allowed the children to throw a first-of-its-kind Halloween party. He then retrieved the cleaning supplies he had purchased for this purpose and mopped up the blood and brain matter in the kitchen so the children wouldn't be alerted to his gruesome acts when they returned from school. List then prepared himself a sandwich and ate it at the table where he just a short time earlier had murdered his wife. So when he was later questioned about this really extraordinarily callous behavior, he simply said, quote, I was hungry. When you're hungry, you make a sandwich. Which, yeah. Uh, Just gives you chills, right? Psycho. Yeah. So now with those to-dos checked off the list, and I mean, I'm saying this like very sardonically, but I think this is how his mind was working. He's like got a to-do list he's got to work through. He then had to go do some administrative errands. He had to go to the bank, incidentally, to clean out his mother's checking account for getaway money, which he didn't even get 20000 in today's dollars, but that was his start a new life money. He had to go to the post office to pause mail delivery and then home again to call the kids' schools. His cover story for the upcoming absence was that the family was going to North Carolina to visit a sick relative. He also had to write several letters with final arrangements for the family and a lengthy confession. So, I mean, he didn't just go off half-cocked. I mean, this was seriously planned. 
It was mm-hmm. seriously orchestrated. He wanted to have control even after they were gone. You know, he gave instructions on where they should each be buried, that they wanted to be cremated. I mean, it's just, it's cray cray, obviously, which is why we're talking about it. But it's like so thick. Yeah. yeah. Next level. <laughs> In the afternoon, he followed much the same steps with each of his children. And I'm just not going to go into it because the information's out there if you want to find it. Bottom line is he murdered each of his children. And then, like Helen, he placed each child on a sleeping bag and moved them one by one into the ballroom. And he lined them up like dolls right next to the family air hockey table, each of them either face down or with their faces covered. Liz then went about cleaning up the blood as best he could, although by this point he was getting tired. I mean... He had had quite a day. He made himself dinner, ate, and then went to bed early. And he later described the feeling he had after killing everyone in the world who loved him by saying, quote, I felt spent, sated, something like the empty feeling left after sex, end quote. Again, that's not how you're supposed to feel after sex. Right, right, right. I mean, maybe spent and sated, but not an empty, empty feeling. Yeah, so he had weird sex shit problems. The next morning, List went around the house and turned all the lights on. He set the stereo to a loop recording of classical organ music. And this is where I get into that kind of classical, but with a hint of church. He mm-hmm. favored classical organ music. And then he broadcast it over the family intercom system. So I don't know if you've ever lived in an old house that has one of these inter- intercom systems just built in. But I've he seen them it- on the TV. <laughs> he set it to play over this intercom system. And then he turned the thermostat down to 50 degrees and left Breeznoll for the final time. Because of his careful planning and clever cover story, no one in Westfield knew anything was wrong for weeks. But because of Patricia's ominous stories to friends and teachers, some folks became concerned after a little time had passed with no word from anyone. The next-door neighbors, who knew the list socially and so had seen some of that kind of bizarre lawn-mowing and rock-throwing behavior, also became suspicious. The lights in the house were on day and night because he had turned them on, but they never saw a soul coming or going. Then a strange car began lingering in front of the house at odd times, so the neighbors, you know, were just a little bit freaked out. They had no way of knowing that the suspicious car belonged to one of Patricia's drama coaches who had started driving by to check on her. Mm -hmm. In fact, the coach had gone to the police with his concerns, but they had dismissed his fears as ludicrous. After all, I mean, what could possibly happen in Westfield? But on Tuesday, December 7th, Patricia's drama coach persuaded another coach to go with him to Breeze Knoll and try to enter the home. As he slipped through a side window, the neighbor saw the strange car again and went to investigate. Before leaving his house, he asked his wife to call the police and report a possible burglary. So the neighbor runs over to the house, the drama coach is climbing in, and then when the police arrive a few minutes later, 
the neighbor and the drama coaches try to explain the concern and confusion. Mm -hmm. The officers finally at this point decide to take a look around. When one officer came to the ballroom window, he peered in to see what was clearly a lifeless leg or arm. And exactly four weeks after the cold-blooded murders, Alma, Helen, Patricia, John, and Frederick had finally been found. God damn. Yeah. Well, this is a fascinating story, and it just keeps getting more interesting, too. Yeah. So, listeners, you can tell already by the name of the episode (laughs) and the length of time you're at right now. Um, This is a long one, and there's going to be a part two, so... Please join us next week. We're going to pick up right here Mm -hmm. and get into the aftermath of this incomprehensible crime that shocked the nation and lists escape and the exhaustive manhunt to find him. And then we'll get into all of the pieces of culture that have been inspired or came to be as a result of this insane case. Right. I mean, this is why I keep coming back to it. There's so much there. And every time I learn something new. Yeah. Well, spoiler alert, you and I are going to talk about the next episode right now. So (laughs) I get the benefit of continuing the conversation. But listener, we will see you in one week. And as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. 100%. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production.